the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Hello and welcome to the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean and I work for Hollywood Trust and I'm joined today by Paul Gosling. Hi Jared. So this podcast is a series of conversations with community and political representatives addressing a number of main issues, or four main issues, increasing the civic voice, creating a more shared and integrated society, dealing with the past and addressing the constitutional question. And for this conversation, Paul, you met with Peter Osborne. Yeah, and Peter, at the time I interviewed him, was still chair of the Community Relations Council, which is the funder of these podcasts. Yeah, In fact, he's been replaced since then because they had a a change of the board at the Community Relations Council, but Peter was very personally committed to this project. Yeah, Um, and it was a really interesting conversation that you have. So we're going to hear from Peter in a minute, but I found some of the interesting topics being like independence of the sector. It, It talks about that as an important thing. Yes, I mean... This isn't altogether surprising in a way, given mm. Peter's role. I mean, Peter's someone who's thought about these things a, a lot. You know, but he's not only the former chair of the Community Relations Council, also so former chair of the Parades Commission, yeah. and he has thought in detail. And that shows, you know, you can as you listen to Peter, you hear the voice of someone who has thought about these things a lot. And as you say, yeah, one of the things he's making the point about is that we... you. The, the, the sector's unable to be fully independent when it is financially dependent yeah. and the quality of the voice is therefore impaired. Mm. And the competition for resources doesn't help that either. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the pot is getting smaller and actually, you know, when the pot's getting smaller, are the discordant voices the more likely to get the money or are the more accepting and yeah. well-behaved voices more likely to get the money? Okay. Um, it talks about mechanisms to get the to hear the civic voice as well as being important. Yeah, that's right. And he's saying, well, let's not talk about the return of the civic forum. Let's mm. move ahead rather than going backwards. And he is keen on the citizens' assembly experience in the south. But actually, again, drawing on his experiences previously, the chair of the parades commission, he's making the point, which I think quite often we forget actually, and I I think I'd forgotten this really, is that we actually had good practice examples out there about how we make progress on some of the most difficult, challenging issues we've ever Mm. faced in Northern Ireland, policing and parades. And if you look at the reform of policing and you look at the level of consultation that led to the reforms of policing, and, you know, despite the legacy of some paramilitaries within the dissident Republican community and in parts of the lawyers' community, broadly, you have to say that changing the RUC into the PSNI has been an amazingly successful process. Mm. And that was off the back of proper community consultation. So surely, surely that's something we should be learning from and trying to replicate if we can. And he talks about relationships, importance of building those relationships and allowing that civic voice to come through. Because as you say, there were citizens involved in these processes. This wasn't just all statutory processes either. That's right. It wasn't top down. It was not necessarily bottom up, but it does involve proper widespread community consultation. Okay, well, let's hear the interview with Peter. How do we strengthen civil society in ways that enable us to make progress? It's a good question. And if you look at civil society today, I I think there is a real issue about the independence of civil society, of the the voluntary and community sector. Uh, There is a sense that uh, the need for funding, which is increasingly tight, uh, particularly the last five or 10 years, as we've 
uh, seeing the impact of austerity. As funding is increasingly tied to those voluntary and community organisations in a way that do the most work with civil society are chasing funds and therefore are really reluctant in, in some cases to get involved in some of the political issues and the, the social justice issues that are really important in this society. So I, I think there is a, an issue about the independence of the sector and how that sector really relates into political uh, society, the political structures and government itself. I think it's really important we find a mechanism for civil society to have its voice heard. I, I think if you looked at some of the issues that are uh, uh, that are uh, problematic in politics in Northern Ireland today, I suspect if you handed some of those issues over to civil society, they'd find an answer very quickly, uh, regardless of what those issues are. Now, some people would say that's an argument for bringing back the Civic Forum, which was part of the Good Friday Agreement. I'm, I'm not overly in favour of bringing back a Civic Forum in that way. Uh, I think there were limitations to that. Um, part of that limitation in a practical sense was around the commitment to it by government, but also the funding that it received. But also who was on that civic forum was a real issue and would continue to be a real issue. I am a fan of things like um, citizens' assemblies that we've seen working in, in the Republic of Ireland very, very successfully. And I was down at the, the uh, citizens' assembly that dealt with the environment. And what I saw there was a hundred people drawn from civil society, randomly sampled, geographically spread, uh, different gender, uh, genders, different age ranges, different socioeconomic backgrounds, no political baggage, and they were really intensely exploring issues from the perspective of the evidence, not from the perspective of anything around political politics or around what constituency they would have to represent or who might have more influence on who gets, gives them votes. And they explored the evidence and they came up with conclusions uh, that were just logical and that therefore would be good policy based on good evidence. And when you look at the two big successes of the Citizens' Assembly in the South around same-sex marriage and reproductive rights, uh, you have essentially politicians devolving, making recommendations to a Citizens' Assembly who look at the evidence, come up with recommendations, and then it's endorsed at referendum. And in those two cases, uh, you had change on major social issues that caused the political parties difficulty but the process itself allowed the political pro uh, parties, uh, I suppose, to engage in a process where they weren't then taking decisions. They were allowing the Citizens' Assembly to look at options based on evidence and then people in the whole country to take the decision at the end of the day. So there's, there are mechanisms that work, and I think in Northern Ireland we need to find mechanisms to allow civil society to have the voice. Uh, because when, and when you look at um, some of the big successes of the peace process over the last 20 years, uh, two of the big successes, I would argue, are policing and parading. Uh, what do they have in common? Well, what they have in common is policing, amongst other things, uh, when policing reform was mooted and then was processed, you had a panel from civil society that was led by Chris Patton, but with people from Northern Ireland who came up with that report and shaped policing and the change in policing, which I think anybody from any political party or any political persuasion would say has been a big success so far. Confidence in the policing has increased substantially, um, albeit there are still challenges. On parading, you had a parades commission that was established from civil society. You had seven people drawn from across the community. I chaired it for a number of years and was a member of it for a number of years. Uh, in the nine years that I was involved with the parades commission, we never took a single vote. Uh, it was based on 
discussion and consensus of people coming from across the community and why we didn't get everything right, we got most things right in a really contentious, sensitive area of peace building here around parades. Civil society coming together, they can take decisions and they can take good decisions. So we need to find mechanisms and there are two or three examples of potential mechanisms that I think would be really useful here. And I suppose the last thought on it is, part of this is about understanding that when you build a peace here uh, and we're less than halfway through our peace process, it is about relationships and that is about relationships within civil society. And that leads to all sorts of issues around structural change. Um, but it also means that we cannot afford another 10 or 20 years of focusing exclusively on political institutions as the way forward for this peace process. Yes, they're important, but it's relationship building that is at the heart of peace building. Now, you said some really interesting things there, Peter. One of which is about citizens' assemblies, and I suspect that what you said there would be broadly supported across much of the community sector in Northern Ireland. You mentioned the, 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 your concern about the lack of independence, and, and let me just tease this out a bit more, because on the one hand, I suspect what you mean is that community groups don't feel that they can have an independent voice necessarily when they're putting their funding at risk. And secondly, there is a perception that in many grassroots areas, uh, neighbourhood-based organisations, the political parties try to control those organisations. Is, is that the type of thing you mean by the, the threat to independence? I think both of those areas are valid issues. Uh, I think I'm, I was talking more about the first than the second, but let me touch on both. Um, I, th I think absolutely we have a culture that has developed here. I, I, I don't think it's common, it's just in Northern Ireland, I think it's common in other countries and other areas as well, uh, where there is a tighter funding environment, which means it is a lot more competitive, there's less money around, and the voluntary community groups who do a fantastic amount of work on the ground, and government work closely with them in delivering that on the ground, are in a real competitive process. And we've seen over the last few years a number of voluntary community organisations go into the wall because of money, essentially. Um, now, to some extent, that's, that's natural, that organisations come and go. Uh, but you also do see a weakening of that sector and therefore a weakening of what's delivered on the ground by the reduction in the number of organisations and number of people doing that work on the ground. But when they're dependent on government money, uh, it does mean that their voice or their ability or their perception, their, their perceived ability from within themselves to comment critically, positively or negatively, on government policy and how politics is working is then limited. And I think we have a voluntary community sector that uh, wouldn't have been the same as it was 50 years ago, where 50 years ago it would have played an active part, it would have had a voice, uh, it would have spoken for communities, and in fact, it, you could argue in the 1970s it was a voluntary community sector in the darkest days that held a lot of stuff together and started to uh, create the, uh, the, 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 the start of, of, of thinking about cross-community work and take, took some very courageous initiatives within the voluntary community sector to do cross-community work. So that's been curtailed. On, on the other side of uh, whether you're essentially asking is, there a, is it shared out in terms of the funding and therefore you have to be part of the group that's going to get uh, if you uh, uh, if you want some of that government funding, certainly perception of that around. I think there is a reality of that to some extent. Uh, but at the same time, uh, when government is government and people are elected into the office and they dictate and, don't, uh, and, and determine what policy is, that's the way it should be. That's what democratic society is. 
I suppose I would argue as a chair of an arm's length body, it's really important that government uses its arm's length body to distribute funds so that it's, there is no clear political direction in terms of specific funding. Uh, and therefore, the more money that can be allocated through really robust processes through arm's length bodies, the better uh, going forward. And I think that's something that government needs to reflect on in terms of the last five or ten years. I don't have an issue with the politicians. I don't have an issue with the people involved in politics and involved in a lot of the policy. I just wish they'd take more policy decisions because they, they, they get involved for the right reasons and they get elected and therefore they have that mandate, which means that they, they should be determining policy. But it is different. Uh, when you're looking at people making applications for funding, they should be treated fairly. And the way to do that, I think, is, is through strengthening arms length bodies. And it's also, of course, the issue of whether sufficiently in Northern Ireland we have evidence-based policy making. Um, but uh, to move this uh, into a different context, I mean, how do we achieve a more shared and integrated society? It, it, it's a, a fantastic question, and I would put it in the context of, uh, I think we need to be real about what this peace process is about. Uh, first of all, we are in a process that will last at least 50 years. Uh, some people think when the agreement was signed we have peace, we don't. Some people think it would take 10 or 20 years, it won't. Uh, it will take generations and it will be at least 50 years. So 20 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, uh, we are less than halfway through this process. Um, I say that because we need to have the context right of this is a time slow, uh, there's no quick fixes, but we also need to understand that it can go backwards as well as forwards. There's no inevitable forward flow to the peace in Northern Ireland. And we're in a very serious situation at the minute where at best we're standing still. Uh, now we need to understand that because we need to understand that we really do have to reapply ourselves to the essentials and the principles about what peace building around here is about. And we need to get this place moving forward again at some point. Politics is really important in that, but it's about more than politics. How do we transform? I think in 20 years since the agreement, we haven't taken the transformational decisions that are necessary. We still have a society that is as segregated as it ever was. And we still have new people coming through, young people reaching maturity, becoming adults uh, that are living in segregated housing, that go to segregated education, that because of those things, they are then uh, socialized in a way that is segregated. Um, in, a, in a way, our system is the greatest degree of social engineering that there's ever been. I mean, I, I'm somebody that, that is a strong advocate for young people learning and developing together, and I'm, I, I'm told because I would be a supporter of that, integrated education, but also wider than integrated. It's not just about integrated education. I'm told I want to socially engineer. It's not me that socially engineers. It's the people who created a system a hundred and more years ago that segregate our children when they're four or five years old. That's the greatest degree of social engineering you could actually get. So we need to we need to start taking the decisions that break that sort of thing down. And in the 20 years since the agreement was signed, we haven't done that. Shared education is good. It's important. It can lead to some positive results. But my fear is that shared education, while it's driven by the money, uh, will be like throwing a bucket of water over a, over a rock. Uh, when the water dries up, you wouldn't know what had happened to start with, with new people coming through a still segregated education system, a still segregated housing system, a still segregated way of living in general. So uh, how do we start to do that? Well, we need to seriously look at things like, we have a teacher training system, adults, uh, which is segregated. Can you believe it? That people who are 18 years and older, in their 20s, if you want to teach in a state or a Protestant school, 
you have to go to a college which is largely 90% or so Protestant people going to it and the same on the Catholic side. I mean, you wouldn't do that in any other walk of life. I mean, how ridiculous would it be if you said, if you want to become a doctor, you have to go to a college where uh, you'll, be, you'll be trained to be a doctor with other Protestants and the same, go to a different college if you're a Catholic to train to be a GP as a Catholic and you can only treat Catholics and Protestants. That'd be a lot of nonsense. And yet that's what we do with teachers. So we need to take a really serious look at how we have a one teacher training college for everybody in Northern Ireland. I think we need to take a really serious look at how structurally education is managed through area planning. And we also need to come up with initiatives that encourage local areas where there are two, three or four schools when there actually should be one or two to reduce the number of schools in that area. That will save millions of pounds. And my goodness, higher education system needs that saving to go into all sorts of things around teachers assistance and uh, and the infrastructure of the schools themselves. My son is at a school where one of the classes actually has to put a pot down to catch the water coming off the roof when it's raining and yet we're wasting millions of pounds in a segregated education system. Absolutely crazy, but it needs some really courageous, big political policy decisions, and we haven't taken those decisions yet. The same is true in housing. Um, so when you look at housing policy here, we have a shared housing policy, which is great, um, but over two terms of an assembly, 10 years, the uh, policy around shared housing, its aim is to build 487 not estates or anything, 487 units, 487 houses in 10 years that would be in the shared housing schemes. In that same 10 years, we will build over 60,000 units. So our shared housing policy has an ambition uh, which equates to less than 1% of total housing. I could actually make an argument to say that that is going to reinforce the segregation in housing because they're replacing houses in areas that were less segregated in the 1940s and 50s and 60s than it is today. Uh, it's just not enough. And then what happens whenever, as happened in one of those shared housing units two years ago, UVF flags go up and two families are intimidated out, is we don't defend the, the limited policy that we have. We allow those flags to continue to fly and people move out of those shared housing units. That area will not be a shared housing area in a year or two unless we really defend the policy that is supposed to be there. We'll abandon it as somewhere that people don't want to live in if in this case they're from a Catholic background. So um, how we break down the segregation, we need to take dramatic, bold policy decisions that are, going to, that are going to structurally change this society because managing conflict and managing division is one thing. In a way, it's what the Community Relations Council does with the relatively small amount of funding that it gives out. It promotes cross-community activity. What we need to do is tackle the causes of segregation and we haven't done that yet. And you've mentioned, I mean, we can all agree that integrated education is a good thing. There, there are specific problems, though, aren't there, with both the shared education and shared housing policies. The shared education policy, uh, teachers have said to me, well, it's about people looking out of the classroom, staring at the kids in the other school across the, the schoolyard. That doesn't actually take you forward because they're not actually taught together. And in terms of shared housing, some of the shared housing developments are on interface lines, and it means that's a place where different organisations, paramilitary organisations, can be in conflict as to whose territory that is. And that's not really going to move us forward, is it? I think you're indicating that we need more dramatic and, and significant policy development than we currently have, and I think that's ab absolutely right. Um, I mean, it, it, it's going to take a wee bit of time as well. None of these things are going to happen overnight. But at the same time, we're, as I said, 20 years into a process that is at least 50 years long. 
young people who would have been starting their school life in 1998 will already be adults. And so even if we make some incremental reforms around breaking down the segregation in education, it is going to take a generation or two for that to float through the, 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 the adult population as would be in 20 years or so time. Look, shared education is, um, I, I mean, I wouldn't be completely negative about shared education. I think shared education has some really valuable uh, parts to it. I think, uh, and what it does do is bring young people together. And I think it is more robust than just looking out windows at each other. I think there are, there are activities happening that, that can really shape and change people's perspectives. The issues I have with it are, first of all, there needs to be a, a robust continuum of where you expect the schools and the pupils to get to. So it's not just about, here's £100,000 we can access, let's do some of these activities, uh, isn't that wonderful, and then the money runs out and we stop doing them. They have to be moving on to a continuum where there's no going back in terms of some of the contact and the relationships um, that are there. Uh, and that is that is just fundamentally important to it otherwise it will be like throwing a bucket of water over a, over a, over a rock you it will dry up and you wouldn't know what had happened when the next cadre of young people come through the education system um, but i also think we do need to take uh, some really robust policy decisions uh, about um, not just the continuum but but a, about how schools move from from two, where two become one in certain areas. And I think we need to uh, incentivize that for people. I understand, I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of politicians across the divide and, and they'll tell me they're supporters of integrated education and that's good. Uh, I think there's more than just integrated education we can look at. It's not just integrated education, but that's positive. But you then don't see many of those politicians coming out and being public advocates for it. Now, why is that? The reality is, for many of them, they don't see the benefit to their their interests or their views about life and how things should develop here. I think we need to incentivize both the schools and the politicians and others to become greater advocates of changing the segregated nature of our education system. So I mean, I, I'll give you an idea. Uh, so in, in I'm not name the areas, but in, in uh, two villages a mile apart uh, along a part of the coast in Northern Ireland, those two villages have fewer than 250 uh, children of primary school age, yet those two villages a mile apart are served by four separate schools. Now, that wouldn't happen anywhere else in these islands. Uh, and how much money is spent on four schools compared to one or two? Uh, it, you couldn't, it, it's not a straight division because there's money that would be spent on one or two that would be spent for it's not a straight division but there, I'm sure there's hundreds of thousands of pounds of savings to be made how do we get us a policy in place in programme of government for example that says do you know what if, if that, those areas reduce the number of schools from four to two we'll keep that budget as it is so the amount of total spending in that, those two villages on education will not change but it will have two schools and the £200,000 a year that, it, that the area saves will continue to go into the new two schools or the, the, the now two schools. And the local community can spend that money whatever they want. So there's education under achievement. There's two or three teachers that can specifically tackle education under achievement in those areas. There's issues around rural transport. Well, those, those, they, can, they can hire a minibus to work in those two schools with a permanent driver. There's issues around diversity. Well, let's run a programme out of that £200,000 a year uh, that that uh, can can take P7s to 
places that teach them about diversity. They're worried about the transfer test, which I would, which I think is a is a problem in itself. But let's employ two teachers to work with the P6s and P7s in those two schools, additional to what they would currently have, uh, to help them all through their transfer test. I think if you were to do something like that uh, over, let's say, a 10-year period, suddenly that incentivizes the local community and the politicians to uh, reduce the number of schools. And by reducing the number of schools, it is then inevitably going to increase uh, the sharing, uh, but also to end the segregation in education in those villages. Now, you mentioned about one of the problems about shared housing being the erection of flags. I mean, how do you think we should deal with that? Because, you know, clearly, apart from all the other issues about flags, they are also identifiers of ownership of different physical areas. And that is a barrier towards social integration. So how should we deal with that? How should the police or other organisations deal with the erection of flags which demark territory? It's a very difficult issue. Look, first of all, I mean, in my view, I think the, the law and the legal guidance is very clear. Uh, you cannot erect things in landposts. <coughs> there are a number of um, laws around that, that that just make it clear that they, they should not be there. So I don't think it's about what flags are up. Uh, it is about it is unlawful to put material like that on, on a lamppost. Um, I understand how difficult it is. It's not just a policing issue. It's for other agencies too. And can you take those flags down everywhere? Uh, I, I think that would be a huge challenge because of the number of flags that are up. I understand that. But when you come to a shared housing area, I think you need to implement the law. When the law says you cannot put flags up, uh, it is even, even stronger when it comes to flags that are related to a prescribed illegal organisation. When it is done specially to intimidate, uh, then those flags should be coming down in those shared housing areas. I think there should be zero tolerance in that. When the flags go up, yeah, give it a day or two to see if people will take them down themselves. But if they don't, they should come down. Uh, in the in that case, uh, a couple of years ago, actually they went up in June. Uh, in one street they came down in September, but in another street, which was actually more the shared housing area, it took Santa Claus to come in December for people uh, dressed as Santa to go up to put Christmas decorations up and while they were doing that they took the UVF flags down six months later. That, that's, that's just, it's not acceptable uh, and it's certainly not acceptable in one of the flagship shared housing areas. So I, I think there needs to be courage and decision making in those areas to say it's just zero tolerance. There will be no symbols like that go up uh, in, in shared housing areas. I think there's something we need to reflect on how we encourage more people to want to live in shared housing areas because we need to increase the numbers. I think 487 over 10 years is too little. Uh, I, I keep coming back to uh, financial incentives uh, for people living in those shared housing areas. I'd I, I, be open to other ideas, but it's certainly something that's there um, that uh, may well help to increase the number of people living in those areas. But when they're there, they then need to be protected. And one of those is, is around flags and envelopes. I think there's a wider issue which you're touching on uh, about flags and emblems that go up. That's obviously going to be dealt with maybe through the FIT Commission, uh, but with no assembly, the FIT Commission looks as if it's not going to be reporting publicly at all. I think that's unfortunate. I think they should produce the report. It doesn't have to go to ministers. It can go to the Secretary of State, or God forbid, it could actually go to civil society as a whole who have an interest in this thing. Let's see what they said. Um, but I think that around flags, they, they, we do need clarification or reinforcement of the fact that it is unlawful to erect flags, certainly erect flags to intimidate or to try to uh, take over an area as one side of the community or another. Think about what that says. 
uh, because in Northern Ireland, there are very few areas that are, um, you know, ex council areas that are exclusively unionist or exclusively nationalist. You, you, most of the council areas will be very close in terms of makeup or, or have 60, 70% Protestant unionist, 30% Catholic nationalist Republican. Think of what it says when you say for two or three months of the year, it's okay to put flags up that identify an area as one particular side of the community or another. What you're actually saying is to that minority community, keep your head down uh, for those number of months, put up with it, tolerate being intimidated, don't go into certain areas, uh, but above all, just keep your head down and don't uh, show yourself to be from that minority community. That's not acceptable in any society and it certainly should be the aim of what we have here to be building a society where uh, we don't accept that, but we do accept the diversity and inclusion across the community divide, whatever your background. Now, one of the other causes of division is dealing with the past. How do you think we should deal with the past and to what extent can we achieve reconciliation through dealing with the past? It's a hugely complex area. I, I think the, the issue I would reinforce more than anything else, and uh, when we made a submission, the Community Relations Council made a submission on the recent legacy proposals that were produced, uh, we really enforce reinforced the, uh, the 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 uh, the idea that acknowledgement is critically important here. Uh, unfortunately, in some ways, acknowledgement was disappeared from some of the proposals produced by um, was it Fresh Start uh, two or three years ago. They were disappeared when it came to the leg draft legislation. It was coming out a, a year or so ago. I think what Fresh Start said was that the two governments should. Uh, produce statements of acknowledgement and then encourage others to, to, to produce something similar. Uh, that wasn't in the proposals from last year. Uh, that should be in the proposals from last year because acknowledgement is critically important. I do. I, I would be involved in a charity called Remembering Srebrenica, uh, the genocide in Bosnia in 1995. Srebrenica, where 8,500 people, all but one from a Muslim background, were killed in a space of four days and it was designated as a genocide. In that village in Srebrenica, uh, last year, for the first time since 1995, a Serb was elected who denies that genocide took place. Now, I'm not getting into the debate of who did what at that particular time, and there are certainly things, very bad things done by people from all sides of that community, and I have nothing against the Serbs. But it is really important when something, something as traumatic as that happens, that people acknowledge the hurt and the pain and the anguish and the trauma that it caused. And so acknowledgement is, in, for me, the most critically important uh, aspect here. Yes, you need to link that into issues around justice, um, uh, and there are ways and means of doing that. But I think the provision of accurate information about what happened and acknowledgement by those who were behind what happened of the trauma that was caused, not necessarily an apology, but it is about acknowledging the trauma and the hurt caused, is fundamentally important and I don't think we've got to that space yet. I think there's been some efforts and some things were said uh, over the last 20 years but it hasn't been as much as it should have been and in a way the controversy around the politics of this where victims have been victims of politicization of this issue, they've been kicked around as political footballs for a number of years, uh, in a way that has got in the way of one of the things I think victims really need which is um, more information and acknowledgement. Some will want justice as well. I think that's part and parcel of this process. But the critical thing I think are, is, is accurate information 
I hesitate to say the truth because different people have different truths, but accurate information about what happened and genuine acknowledgement of the pain that was caused by what happened on all sides. Because uh, the definition of justice is itself disputed, but what can't be ignored is the sense that if there's uh, organisational structural denial of things having happened and responsibility for that, then that is a blockage to people uh, uh, moving on. Yes, it is. And, and that's why uh, I think what you're hinting at is, is uh, where does that acknowledgement come from? It needs to come from all sides. There are things that the state did, uh, both British and Irish, um, but in Northern Ireland, particularly in terms of the British state, uh, there are things that uh, people did on the Republican side and on the Loyalist side that um, need to be talked about more, the information provided on it more, and those people who were involved acknowledge the pain that was caused um, and, and I don't think we've got to that place yet. Now the other really challenging conversation that needs to be had is the constitutional situation. So how do we have that conversation in ways that don't that dangerously inflame the situation? Gosh it's, a, it's, a, it's not a good, uh, uh, we're not going through a good period at the minute and Brexit I, I think has really increased instability. Uh, in the context of there being no executive for the different reasons that the executive collapsed in January 2017 um, uh, makes it more pro problematic still. Um, I, I don't know is the answer in, in, in how you get into a real issue of uh, constitutional discussion. I, I think we need to address, seriously need to address the issues of structural change before we can have any substantial conversation, meaning, meaningful conversation around some of those issues. Um, what do you mean by structural change? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the reconciliation agenda. I, I'm talking about the, the, the structural change about how we organise this society. It's this sort of stuff, around the, particularly around housing and education. Um, if I was, I mean, I, I'm not coming from any particular political persuasion in discussing this question, but if I was a unionist, I would want reconciliation here because I would acknowledge that reconciliation is an important part of of making this place work, especially when we are all minorities in Northern Ireland now. There is no majority. We're all minorities. And so the only way you make this place work from a unionist perspective is to, uh, is to, is to help reconcile the peoples in Northern Ireland uh, so that they can work together better. But if you're from a, a nationalist or Republican background, uh, I think exactly the same argument applies before you can get into any substantial conversation about changing the constitutional status or uniting the island as a whole in, in, in one uh, political framework. Uh, and that brings you back to reconciling the people in Northern Ireland through the structural change. So I, I, I think it is just fundamentally important to both sets of people who want to either sustain the constitutional position or change the constitutional position to, to get into that structural change, that change of how the society organises itself. Otherwise, you will get no movement forward on any of those questions. We'll continue to be minorities in this part of the island, in this part of the UK, and we'll continue to have the sort of really strained political narrative that we have. And at some point, we will go back into something that we don't want to go back into in terms of conflict. Um, that's, that's how important this is to... To, to reshape how this society deals with each other, to reshape the relationships that we have with each other. And that comes back to taking the big political 
policy decisions around housing and education. So how do we persuade politicians from either unionist point of view or Republican background that actually the, the, that focus on reconciliation has to come before the arguments as to whether we are better off within the UK or within a united Ireland? Well, I mean, I, we, we can say what we say and we can, we can do what we do and write what we write and discuss in the way that we discuss it. Ultimately, it's up to them to, to make the leap and, and, uh, and do less. Uh, there is much ag acknowledging the importance of, of reconciliation and housing and, and education and more of actually supporting it in practice. I mean, let me give you an example. <coughs> in, I think, 2015, might have got that year wrong, uh, the Titanic building in Belfast received 60 million pounds of public money. Um, fantastic building and a great facility, but that's £60 million. If this Community Relations Council were to distribute it to the core-funded work that it does around reconciliation, it would take us 30 years. And the Titanic is one building uh, amongst many that received public money on the theme of economic development. Um, so in my view, I don't think we prioritise reconciliation anywhere near as much as we should in central government. I don't think it's been resourced anywhere near as much as it should within central government, uh, and especially not when you compare it to other things. Now, it's not about one, either one or the, one thing or the other. We need to do all of those things, um, but I think there needs to be a greater prioritisation of what reconciliation is about. How do you persuade politicians to do that? Well, you make the arguments, uh, but ultimately they need to come to the same conclusions, in, in my view, uh, as I've come to and many others, which is that we need to put a lot more resource into it and we need to make those uh, systemic changes to how this society works. I actually think many of the politicians are in that same place. I think they do understand it, um, but it's a huge challenge. And when you talk about some of those uh, systemic change issues. There are enormous vested interests on either side of the community uh, that politicians at some point need to stand up to. Uh, and so I suppose you're balancing out their belief in the reconciliation agenda, reprioritizing it and making the policy changes, balancing out that with the impact or the influence that vested interests have on keeping the status quo as it is. I think politicians need to take the courageous step and do a lot more of the challenging and a lot more of the supporting of systemic change. Okay, Peter Osborne there, and with a lot more points they re reflect, I think, on after after hearing from Peter, I think the one that jumps out straight away is the fact that he believes this is at least a 50-year peace process and we're only 20 years under it. That's right, and you know, and he's also looking at what's happened in the, uh, the, uh, the Balkans as well. Mm. Um, yeah, it's we can't expect too much, you know, we, we, but at the same time, Peter's also saying we're not moving fast enough, you know, and the example he gives, the slow pace in terms of providing shared housing, you know, this mm. is just too slow. And also, you know, this and this is something that other interviewees have said, and Naomi Long is one of the people who said it very forthrightly as well, which is that, you know, there's something very strange about our schooling system, to put it politely, yeah. you know, that we're not educating kids together. That creates an enormous financial cost. And, and one of the things Peter has been saying in the last few days since I interviewed him is he's proposed... A, a, a process similar to the Bengoa reform analysis for the health sector, which, I mean, is not going fast enough, but it is the basis for reforming the NHS because the NHS also is too committed to building infrastructure rather than actually service delivery. And it's the same issue within the school sector. And he's saying, well, perhaps we should have a Bengoa type review of schooling to actually create a more 
integrated and cost benefit based schooling system yeah. which would also both it would both reduce the cost and also encourage kids to to meet each other to learn from each other and to to build community links yeah at, at childhood and i suppose that the depth of consideration that he's given to this is reflected in the fact that he actually had some practical um, suggestions for how schools could be incentivized to merge or to close or whatever it is yeah and i i mean he's certainly not unique in saying this that mm. actually the way you're going to make progress around the the the, the plethora uh, and the the waste within the the, the school sector is by creating financial incentives because we just cost too much. I mean, the, the figure that Naomi Long gave us was, well, you know, the, the duplication based around public service delivery because of the, the separated or segregated structures we have is between 750 million a year and 1.5 billion pounds a year. Mm. I mean, really? I mean, you know, so yes. And, and Peter's saying, well, the, the obvious solution is that we create financial incentives to make progress. Yeah. He talks about a uh, really challenging issue as well. He talks about flags and, and how that might be dealt with. Yes, and he's basically saying that, um, I won't say he says we're a bunch of wimps, but I mean, he does say that we actually haven't got, you know, sufficiently strong structures in place to enforce the laws we have, which does remind me of, I can't remember where I heard this suggestion in years gone by, but a basic principle of good governance in society is you don't have laws that are going to be ignored. Hmm. There needs to be a relationship between the laws we have and the laws we implement. Okay. Enforcement is, is very much part of the lawmaking process, I suppose. On dealing with the past, um, as you'd expect, as someone who's involved or at the time of the Community Relations Council, he talks about the need for both acknowledgement and reconciliation. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's obvious in a way, especially if you hear all the interviews that we've been going through, it is one of the regular points you know we we if we simply ignore the past and fail to accept the hurt the people the pain the the enormous trauma the physical injuries that people have and if people are unable to tell their stories and they feel their stories are being ignored or devalued then we're not going to be making progress mm -hmm. and it refers to the minorities in this place. Yeah, we're all minorities yeah, now. All there's, minorities. No, there's no majority. We're all minorities. Yeah. I was also shocked by the the investment or the underinvestment in community relations activities. And when you put it under the context, it, it shows you how seriously it has or hasn't been taken here as well. Yeah, and again, there's a parallel there, the, the underinvestment in community relations and the underinvestment in the physical infrastructure of community relations because he's, again, making that point yeah. about the lack of investment in shared housing compared with you know, the proportion of total new, new housing bills, building. Yeah. That's right, exactly. Okay. Well, that's it for this episode of the Forward Together podcast. You can find future episodes on hollywelltrust.com, sluggerotool.com and the various social media outlets of both. So thanks to Peter for taking the time and for Paul for carrying out the interview and to Dee Kern and Eamon Doherty for production support. And we'll talk to you again soon. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.